This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 32 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and this is going to be a very special episode of this show. So I recently went to the Swift and Fika conference in Stockholm, Sweden, where I was giving a talk and I thought that it would be a great opportunity to try out a little bit of an experiment with this podcast. So I brought my portable recorder with me to the conference and during the day I sat down with four really awesome members of the Swift community and talked to them about various topics. So this is going to be like a rapid fire interview special where we're going to have four different guests talking about different topics. And we're going to kick it off with Alec Ostrom who is the co-organizer of the Swift and Fika conference, and he also organizes Cocoa Heads in Stockholm as well. So we talked about organizing events for the community and how to get started with something like that. I also then talked to Anastasia Vixantel, who has been on this show before, but I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to her again about security, encryption, and all the really interesting work that she's doing in this field. I then talked to Janina Kutin, who has done some really cool work measuring all the different rendering layers that we have at our disposal as iOS developers and kind of looking at the performance characteristics of them. So we talked about, you know, optimizing rendering code and layout and things like that. And finally, I talked to JP Simard, uh, who is the creator of SwiftLint and Jassy, among many other things. And we talked about static analysis, building developer tools, and how these things kind of can fit into our workflows as developers. So I hope you're going to enjoy this special episode. Uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And if you have any sort of feedback about it after listening to it, I'd love to hear it. So without further ado, let's kick things off. Let's jump back in time. Let's go back to the Swift and Fika conference and let's kick it off with my interview with Alec Ostrom. All right, so I am here with Alec Ostrom, who is the organizer of Cocoa Heads here in Stockholm, and also the co-founder and the co-host of the Swift and Fika conference. Uh, welcome to the show, Alec. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, so this is your very first conference that you've uh, been organizing. So what's it been like, you know, taking something like Cocoa Heads and scaling it up to a whole conference? Well, first of all, it's been really, really fun. Like me and Rita, we have talked about this. Uh, we talk, first talked about it, I think two years ago at uh, the Nordic JS after party. And we okay. were like, okay, we need an iOS conference in town. Uh, how are we gonna do it? And then nothing happened, right? Yeah. So fast forward two years later, and uh, I'm organizing uh, CocoaEds together with my buddy Stefan. And now we're picking up the conversation again. And we start scouting for venues, we start looking for partners. Again, nothing happens until in May, so just a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah, and then we got back to Rita, and he was so hyped about it and, and wanted to join in. And then it's just been frantic months uh, up until then, because from May to September, it's just four months. Yeah. And we had to 
like get the venue secured, get all the speakers, do all the marketing, start selling tickets as fast as possible. And now I'm so happy that we managed to do all of this in time and even selling out first year has been great. Yeah, that's really, really impressive. And seeing everything come together must be really, really satisfying, right? Like after all of those parts that you need to do. And I always say that uh, conference organizers are a little bit like the unsung heroes of the community, you know? Usually it's like the speakers, they get a lot of like recognition and people, you know, say, oh, you know, we like the talks. Uh, but the organizers are really like the heroes behind the whole thing. And I think sometimes people don't really get how much work actually goes into organizing something like this. So it's really, really impressive and I'm, I'm really happy that you put this together. Well, thank you so much, John. And for me, of course, uh, the talks are the, the real highlight. And like, uh, John, yourself, you've been uh, speaking at CocoEds multiple times. Yeah. And now, since you become this superstar in the community, <laughs> after becoming an expat, it's so nice to finally be able to see you coming back here to Stockholm and and performing a talk later here today. I'm yeah. really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. So if people want to start, maybe not organizing a conference because that's a huge thing, right? Mm -hmm. But if people want to start like growing their own local community, for example, like starting a Cocoa Heads chapter in their city or maybe putting together a meetup, do you have some like top tips for people, like how to get started? How do you get over the barrier of trying to find you know, venues and people to sponsor with, with food and drinks and things like that? Like, how do you get started? Well, actually, when I started off, um, I had some, uh, I was cheating a bit, right? Because yeah. I didn't start Cocoa at Stockholm itself. It was Martin Frey, who, st who uh, really um, did the big lifting. And then I kind of took it over from him. Right. So by then, I already had like uh, contacts with sponsors and uh, people attending as well. Yeah. But for anybody who's starting out new, I would say that you really need to first find your niche uh, and and look at how you're gonna uh, put the events together. So are you gonna be at the same location every time? Mm -hmm. That has its benefits. Or are you gonna do it like we do it here at Copenhagen Stockholm, where we go to a new location every time for every meetup and then have the have the host pay for uh, for food and drinks. Right, exactly. And uh, what do you think, like, if you're going to start out and uh, you're trying to decide, like, what scale to put it at? Like, mm. do you think it's good to get maybe just a small group of people together, maybe do some, some coding together? Or do you think you should go for something bigger that might attract more people? Uh, you know, which strategy do you think could be good to, to start with? I'd say definitely grow it organically. Yeah. Cocoa in Stockholm started out with just a few people meeting in the Spotify offices and sharing presentations between each other over in a meeting room. And I really think that if you, if you uh, grow the community uh, from the grassroots level with, with people coming in, if you make events that people will appreciate, then uh, it will grow naturally because more people are gonna want to join. And yeah. I think actually it's much harder to kind of like come in as an unknown and do a much bigger event at once. Yeah. Uh, and in regards to the, the conference, Swift and Fika, mm -hmm. like putting this event together, uh, I was helped a lot of uh, having, uh, having uh, been doing all these uh, events with Cocoa at Stockholm for a long time. 
Because, for instance, with sponsors, we sold out all our sponsorships within a week or two. Wow, that's really impressive. Oh, thank you. Well, it's because we've been doing these events with these uh, sponsors before, and they already knew about us. Uh, They already knew about me, so it was easy for me to approach them. And and they also could rely on me to to produce an event of this scale, because they've seen me do it in the past. Yeah, absolutely. It's like anything, I guess, you know, whether you're going to start like organizing events for the community, you want to start maybe blogging or doing open source or even just coding in the first place, it's always easier to start with something smaller, kind of find your find your footing and then kind of grow from there. Because as you say, also, uh, the sponsors, the people buying tickets to this conference, uh, they kind of know you from organizing other events at a smaller scale, uh, which, you know, gives them the confidence to kind of come here and, and be part of this event. So. I think that's uh, that's usually a good approach to take, but it can be hard, right? Because you want to organize something big, right? I, I, I bet that you have been thinking about this conference for a long time. You even said it's like two years in the making, right? So it, I guess it can be hard also to to uh, to start small, but it's usually a, a good way to go, I think. Yeah, and you don't really want to be treading in deep waters before you actually know how to swim, right? Yeah, that's a really great analogy. Well, Alec, I'm going to let you get back to your conference. Uh, it's looking great so far. I really love everything about it so far, like the, the Fika, of course, and uh, the talks so far have been great and everything, the venue. So I'm looking forward to see how the whole day plays out. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Well, thank you very much as well, John. So looking forward to your talk. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right, so that was our first interview with Alec Ostrom. And you can also find him on Twitter at Mr. Alec. Next up, let's jump over to my interview with Anastasia Vixantel about security and encryption. All right, so next up, I am here with uh, Anastasia Vixantel. Hello! Hey, and this is quite exciting because you've actually been on the show before. Yes! Yeah, so you're the very first person ever in the world history of Swift by Sundell to be back on the show. Achievement unlocked. There you go. (laughs) Well, this is a bit of a special episode, you know, so usually I like to have new guests, but you are such an interesting person in terms of what you do uh, with all your security work that you're doing. So I would love to have the chance to chat to you again about some of those things. So uh, people know you in the community, I think, at large for your work around security, encryption, you know, you are working in Cossack Labs on that kind of stuff. Uh, But now you're here today at Swift and Fika, you have a bit of a different talk this time. Uh, You're kind of attacking security from a different angle. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what's what's the difference in your talk right now compared to the things you've talked about in the past? Um, Okay, thank you for inviting me. And regarding my talk, let me do a small recap. Uh, I was talking about uh, cryptography, but as you mentioned, from different angle. Uh, I started from mistakes that we as developers usually do when we are just trying to protect user data. And there are plenty of mistakes I have seen, and I've seen myself, okay? So I was doing those mistakes, like defining the wrong data scope, using the wrong encryption algorithm, the wrong parameters, forgetting about backups, because like encrypted data and plain text backups, it's ridiculous. And uh, my point today was to introduce the concept of boring cryptography. Is this, this is like the idea that we as developers don't need to understand all the details how crypto algorithm works to make secure applications. Yeah. So cryptography tools and instruments should be boring enough 
should be easy to use, should work everywhere, uh, should be well documented, good, strong, audit, certified, etc., etc. For us as developers to use them like like this, like super boring. It's not a problem anymore. Yeah. And uh, from this perspective, it's useless to explain uh, some libraries or some methods, some APIs, because the APIs are changing really fast, especially in our iOS world. So I concentrated on the mindset, on this problem-solving decision map, let's say so. If you have this security problem in your app, how to solve it from like high-level perspective? Yeah. What, do you should, what should you think about? Not which library to select. Yeah, that's a really, really good point because I think security is one of those topics that is quite intimidating for a lot of people, yeah, right? True. And you hear about the word encryption, you start hearing about all of these different algorithms and different ciphers and different techniques. And at some point it can be like, well, what did I get myself into, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I really love the fact that you uh, talked a lot about the mistakes that you've made personally and that you see other people make as well. So uh, what are some of those mistakes? Like uh, you mentioned some of them, but what is, what is like the most common mistakes that you see that people make when trying to implement cryptography in their apps? Uh, the mistake is that they're trying to implement cryptography instead of trying to protect the data. Right. So when they think, uh, start thinking about exact methods, that start, they start Googling exact methods, exact implementations on Stack Overflow. Instead of uh, making a step back, and think why they need that, right? Uh, believing that uh, the idea that their application is not probably is not the one and only side of their system. Right, exactly. And they should care about data, user data through the whole system, through the whole infrastructure, and not just you know to pick some library or to pick some algorithm, but to think about the whole data flow, which is complicated for mindset of like typical iOS developer, right? Yeah. They believe our applications are the best. Yeah, exactly. And, like the only one thing of the product, the main feature yeah. of a super app. Yeah, build all the cool UI, the cool features, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so from cryptography, from security, this is the main mistake because every system is as secure as uh, the weakest component in it. Right, the chain is not stronger than the yes. weakest link, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And if you just dig into how to do encryption on my side, you forget about everything else. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so this is like, the, uh, but this is a mindset mistake. Then we have a lot of those technical issues, like uh, selecting a library, using like uh, some encryption method, but providing the wrong parameters. But it's not your fault. As right. a developer, it's not your fault. The people who create this library provide you an API that you can misuse. Yeah. Basically, is it, uh, when I was doing my talk, I remembered, I recalled your talk about API design. Right, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly the same. In cryptography, it's really important to create unambiguous APIs that are hard to misuse. Mm -hmm. Not yeah. only easy to use. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like with so many other different types of programming, right? Yeah, like whether yeah. you do like graphics programming yeah. or UI programming or any kind. Like when we're building UIs for iOS, we are not usually writing them in metal, right? We are writing yeah. on a kind of much, much higher level of abstraction. And the same should be true for cryptography for most of the use cases, right? Where you don't necessarily need to go down and implement your crazy own cryptography with, uh, with like lots of math and and very low-level things, uh, you could probably use something a bit more high-level. 
Of course, even when you have a good intent as a developer, you can make bad decisions just because you don't have this background, like yeah. you don't have this security or cryptographic background. Usually what I like to think about is like, which business do I want to be in, yeah. right? Do I want to be in the rendering business? Do I want <laughs> to be in the cryptography business, right? <laughs> and whenever I do not want to be in some business, I'm usually looking for a way to outsource that, right? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's usually when I look for, for some tool or some library. And you've been working on such a, a library. You've uh, been working on the Themis library. Yeah. And um, it looks kind of interesting from just like a bird's eye perspective because you make some different trade-offs. You make it more easy to use, more accessible, and you let people use it with more powerful defaults as far as I've, I've seen. So uh, what was the kind of design thinking around building this library and the API design around it? Uh, so a little disclaimer. I am not a cryptographer myself, and the core, the crypto core of Themis is written by cryptographers from Kodak Labs, right? Right. So currently I'm maintaining the library, which is true, and I'm working on all these high-level language wrappers, including iOS. Mm -hmm. So the, the design idea of Themis was to provide this use case-oriented high-level APIs. We didn't want developers to think about encryption algorithms modes, uh, key lengths, etc., etc. we wanted to provide them a secure box, yeah. store data encrypted, a secure, we call it secure sale, by the way, mm -hmm. we provide them secure message, uh, transmit data encrypted, yeah. and secure session, if you need to transmit a lot of data in a socket, in a session communication style. So we have really higher level APIs, it should be super easy to use. At the same time, we did a lot of default settings inside the library itself. It's open source, it's built on existing uh, sources of crypto primitives like OpenSSL, BornSSL, BearSSL, etc, etc. So the idea is that Simis is like a cryptography middleware. Mm. You can change the provider of crypto primitives, you can connect Simis to the hardware like HSM that I mentioned today, hardware security models for key generation, let's say so. But for users, for uh, client users like iOS developers, Android developers, you still see the same high-level APIs. Yeah, that's really powerful. And this is something you see in other types of libraries as well, like Rx, for example, right? Yeah. And this is what people really love about Rx, that the fact that they can talk to Android developers about the same kind of concept, yeah. the same APIs, and it works similarly, right? Yeah. And I guess with something like cryptography, that can be really powerful because usually you need to align that with other platforms. You can't, everyone can't roll their own crypto, right? You can't have different cryptography on iOS and on Android because you're going to communicate with the backend maybe and the data will be all mangled, right? Well, John, I believe that your understanding of the problem is much better than from ordinary iOS developers. Sorry, guys. <laughs> right, that you're, you're, you're true, like you're right. Uh, when we are making apps, we have this a lot of other sites, iOS, Android, web, server site, etc., etc., and we need to think about this as a whole system, yeah. not only our own world. And of course, yeah, crypto algorithms, uh, methods, key derivation functions should be the same on all parts of our system, or at least compatible, yeah, right? Exactly. And I believe that one of the easiest solutions to, to solve this problem is to use one tool yeah. on every platform that solves it, right? There you go, yeah. Yeah, that's simple because then you have one dependency and again you can speak the same language when you're talking about these things and when you're documenting them and yeah. all this stuff. People trying to do that, let's say like OpenSSL, mm -hmm. for example, but here the problem comes because there is no OpenSSL on iOS, like 
native open SSL on iOS, let's say so, and it's still a C core, you need to compile it somehow. Yeah. So even having this idea to use one tool for every platform, in reality, it may be really complicated yeah. to compile, to build a compile, to use, to use these APIs that are not native for your platform. Mm-hmm. That's why in Famous we're working on these high-level wrappers, wrapper language libraries, let's say so, yeah. to make it compatible and comfortable for developers, for exact ecosystem, still having the same crypto core. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really, really cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the final question is, you know, People often hear about cryptography, right? They hear about encryption and everyone kind of knows it's something you're supposed to be doing, but a lot of people don't, right? Because it's hard to get into. It's easy for it to get de-scoped when you are, you know, doing your planning and we're talking to product managers and et cetera, et cetera. So what would be your, like, your, your common entry point when you work with clients or with new developers and things like that? Like, what's a good entry point into this world? Like, what's a good place to start? You mean technically or from motivation perspective? Uh, let's do both. From motivation, it's easy, easy for business. Uh, like people, hey, calculate money loss. Yeah. Right. Uh, now we have GDPR, we have those fines, we have reputational risks. Uh, we don't want to be like T-Mobile. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, we're unhackable. And then yeah, one day later, yeah. they were hacked. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, if your company has uh, some kind of product mindset, for them, it's important not to be like T-Mobile right now. Totally. Yeah. Uh, from technological perspective, so this was motivation part, right? Right. From technological perspective, uh, start from the data flow. I mean, before going into encryption implementation details trying to understand what data do you have how this data flows into your system what risks do you have to data in different components of your system and only then when you understand the risk when you understand which components are less trusted and more trusted you can build uh, good security measures Mm, yeah that's a really good point it's not i mean it's a little bit theoretical, but in the real world, we can say, use this tool, don't use this tool. But it's useless approach. Yeah. It has no future, right? You should plan, understand, and implement security measures depending on your system. Yeah, totally. Because every da- app has different data that they yeah. deal with, and it might be more or less sensitive. Yeah. And the threat model, as you also yes. usually like to mention in yes. your talks, is very good to draw up first, right? Like yeah. what parts do we think could be attacked and how, and how can we protect against that? It's a little bit complicated because we have real users. Right. And you know, uh, this opinion that security and usability are kind of different, but, so we need to create the application that is secure, but not paranoid. Yeah. It's still usable. It's still a pleasure. It's still a pleasure to use it. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. Uh, so happy to be able to talk to you on the show again. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll see when you will be back next time. <laughs> sure. Uh, but now we're going to get back to the conference. So if people want to find you online, where should they go? Uh, well, you know, Twitter. Just use Vixentail and you will find me. Perfect. And I'll put a link in the show notes also to Themis so people can check that out if they want to get started with encryption in their apps. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you, Anastasia. All right, always a pleasure to talk to Anastasia, and I'm sure she will be back on the show again in the future. Next up, let's jump over to my interview with Janina Kutin about rendering performance. 
All right, so my next guest is Janina Kutin, who used to work at Apple, actually, on the Apple Music app, which I think is pretty cool. And she's now changed her career a little bit uh, to be an app developer in Amsterdam here in Europe. So uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. So you did a really interesting talk here at the conference. You were speaking about performance and uh, specifically UI performance. So can you tell us a little bit about what your talk was about and kind of how you got the idea for it? Yeah. Uh, so the talk was about uh, performance implications of various UI drawing techniques. So. Uh, if you draw text through UI label versus core animation layers, or if you use core graphics or um, different approaches to rounding corners or drawing shadows. Um, and I got the idea for this talk actually after I left UIConf and uh, a person from there uh, who I emailed a little bit back and forth, they're saying, you know, it'd be really cool to kind of compare some um, approaches and seeing how they work. I thought that's exactly what I want to talk about. Yeah, it's a really great idea for a talk because what you did was that you compared the different kind of layers that we have at our disposal for rendering on iOS and comparing their performance characteristics from different points of view, right? Mm -hmm. And what I really love that you did was that you put them all on charts, right? So you actually <laughs> measured performance in real numbers and showed kind of the difference between those layers. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, everyone knows what a UI label is or what a UI text view is. Uh, most people know what uh, CA layer is. Um, so that's not anything new. That's stuff you can find uh, on Stack Overflow and you know lots of uh, resources about it. But I wanted to actually quantify it yeah. uh, with some numbers and bring that to light. Yeah, exactly. So your numbers were really interesting, I think. And there was, of course, some trends. And some of it was something that if you've worked on iOS for a while, you could kind of you know, predict that, for example, core animation would generally be faster than, than UI kit, right? Yeah. But there were some really interesting, interesting trends in your talk. Yeah. So I found core graphics, for instance, to be a little bit slower than core animation, uh, but pretty consistent across all uh, different um, sort of effects that you might want to apply. So because you can do it all in one go. Um, but actually, I didn't even realize how powerful CA layers are until mm -hmm. I started doing the research because they have support for so many cool things. It's a, yeah, I didn't even realize this. <laughs> yeah, it was the same for me. I actually wrote a whole game engine on top of core animation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of happened from, I was working against metal and then I wanted to try using core animation just for simplicity and to be able to render on the simulator. And I found just like core animation has everything you need to build a game. And that's really impressive. You know, the fact that it can do both like really high performance rendering for apps and for games as well. Yeah, I agree. And yet it's not a framework that I find uh, people talk about that much. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 to like round corners, uh, you said the corner radius in the layer. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, the shadow, you can do it in a layer. But uh, but there's just so much more. It's, yeah. uh, it's really it's surprising and it's really nice. Oh, yeah, and how it kind of underpins everything that we actually do, you know. And you made this point also in your talk where, you know, a convenience of using core animation is always that you always have the layer mm -hmm. for each view, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you don't need to uh, try to find it or do anything very spe special, uh, it's right there. Yeah, exactly. So the interesting thing there you mentioned earlier was about uh, core graphics and how it's usually slower because it's software rendered, right? Mm -hmm. It's using the, the CPU mm -hmm. to perform all this rendering. Uh, but it's it's very consistent. That's what you found. Like yeah. so, if you're performing multiple rendering tasks, it might actually be a better option. Uh, so that's sort of what I found. 
Um, but in my tests, I only tested with like drawing, getting a single element on the screen. Right. Um, so I didn't test the implications of this in say, like if you're doing cells, uh, uh, which actually was kind of what my talk was about at UICon. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I would like to do a little bit more kind of research. Uh, on that and how it does in big numbers rather than just for this getting a single view yeah uh, yeah i think it's super interesting to put these like concrete numbers on it because mm -hmm. this is something that a lot of people talk about you know performance is really key and everyone wants to render smoothly but sometimes you can run into these you know glitches and and performance drops and seeing these concrete numbers before you start investigating can give you a hint of where to go yeah definitely and i i didn't want to basically make a talk that's like oh you know just be another some guy from Stack Overflow, <laughs> right? right? I, I wanted to give something a little bit more concrete. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So um, when you work on on apps, like in your day to day work, uh, how do you usually kind of kind of fit in performance work into that? Do you do it on like an ongoing basis, or do you usually kind of stop for a while and measure the performance? Like if you run into a problem, or how do you usually deal with that? Um, yeah, I definitely do it more if. It needs to be done. If yeah. I'm testing on devices and everything is running completely fine, there's not, nothing obvious, uh, then I don't bother. Um, but if I start scrolling and I know it's stuttering, then I investigate what's yeah. happening there. Um, and first, my first step is to just uh, look at the code and see uh, if there's anything obvious, like, oh, we're rounding corners. Is that why this might be a little bit slower or other shadows? Um, and if that doesn't give me a clue, then I, I start looking uh, using tools like instruments to and time profiling and see where time is being spent. Yeah, yeah, that's a, great that you bring it up. It's a good segue into the next yeah, topic, okay. uh, which is about kind of what tools you use. So instruments is obviously really powerful, right? You have so many different templates. When you mm -hmm. open it up, there's like, you know, 20 different options and it seems like they add more every year, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, but which ones do you usually use when you are, you know, measuring the performance for UI specifically? Uh, I use the time profiler mm -hmm. um, to see where the CPU is spending its time. And I also use the core animation tool yeah. um, to measure the frame rate and see if it's uh, being dropped. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I haven't actually used that tool in a while because I remember uh, Apple was saying they're going to deprecate it. Um, mm, right, yeah. But I didn't actually follow up to see whether or not they did. Yeah. Um, but I haven't needed to use it in a while. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, it's been a good tool for a long time, so yeah. probably they will have some replacement for it. Yeah. Maybe exactly. some metal, you know, debugging tool or something now that they are moving everything on top of that. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, with Rounded Corner specifically, I think that was very interesting because you talked also about how sometimes um, it's good to kind of combine different techniques, right? Where you want to have like rounded corners and shadows, for mm -hmm. example. You can't just like set mass to bounds because that's how you get the rounded corners, mm -hmm. but that's then you lose the shadow. Yeah, exactly. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Um, so yeah, there are a couple of approaches I talked about in my presentation. So one was to have one view and use that la that view's layer to draw the shadow and over top add another view uh, to do the corners. Um, or another approach would be to use the CA shape layer. But as I mentioned in the presentation, that one's only good if you want a single solid color right. and if you don't want to add anything else because it will uh, sort of take over. Um, and Or just go through core graphics because there you can just set both things on the uh, graphics context at right. the same time. So then you would override like draw rect, then you would, yes. you would actually do that drawing 
in the draw rec method. Yes, yes, exactly. So create a subview, overwrite his draw rec method, and do the drawing yourself in there. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. It's always good to have different options for yep. these kind of things. So uh, before we go, do you have like a top tip for, for people like when it comes to either debugging the performance or like how to achieve better performance in our apps? What is, what's like a top tip for you? I think my top tip is skip auto lib and use manual <laughs> frames in your cells. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of uh, calculating the frames manually, specifically when it comes to, to a lot of scrolling and animating yeah. uh, to kind of improve for that specific use case. Yeah, it's important to remember that auto layout is not free, right? It's yeah. a great tool and it's a great abstraction, but sometimes we need to drop down lower level. And uh, for example, you mentioned um, with scrolling and cells and things mm -hmm. like that, like if auto layout needs to recalculate that 60 frames per second as you're scrolling, you're going to drop frames eventually, right? Yeah. So it's not so much about you know, we don't like auto layout or we like auto layout, it's more like, what do we need to solve this problem? Yeah, precisely. For a static view, even if it's a really complex view, but it doesn't change, yeah, auto layout is great and handles rotation and different uh, size classes. Uh, but if it's going to be, if you're going to be doing scrolling, then that would be what I would suggest to drop. Yeah, that was a really good tip. All right, Janina, it's been a pleasure talking to you and thanks so much for taking uh, the time to do that. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So if people want to find you online, uh, where can they go? They can find me on Twitter and my Twitter handle at Janina Kutin. Awesome. That's where I'm at. Great stuff. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks. All right, so now it's time for the final interview. And this one is with JP Simard. Let's dive right in. All right, our final guest for today is none other than JP Simard, uh, my good friend who is the creator of Swiftlint, uh, the creator of Jassy, works now at Lyft, and is also the co-host of the Swift on Rap podcast. What a resume. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. I'm a fan <laughs> of the show, and so it's nice to, uh, to see you again. We haven't yeah. seen each other in a little while, so uh, things have changed, but uh, the community's still here going strong. Oh yeah, stronger than ever, I would say. It's a big pleasure to have you on, and I definitely want to have you on uh, for some kind of proper full-length episode as well. This has been a really fun experiment to do, like, you know, doing these, like, rapid-fire interviews more at, at a conference. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and for anyone uh, listening in for the first time, we just had the uh, Swift and Fika conference today. We did, yeah. And how did you like the conference? It was fantastic. Um, seeing the uh, the Swift community, especially from uh, from the point of view of of Sweden and uh, just the beautiful city, all the activities. Really, uh, hats off to the organizers for pulling off uh, a really lovely event. Yeah, totally. I loved it as well. So uh, I want to talk to you about your talk because you spoke about static analysis, and this is a realm, you know, no pun intended, uh -huh. uh, that you've been uh, exploring quite a lot. You started out with Jassy, as far as I know, uh, and then you know you were working on. Swiftlint and all these other tools and I just want to mention Jassy because I feel like that's the kind of slightly lesser known cousin of Swiftlint uh, which lets you generate documentation from your from your Swift code. Uh, well tell us a little bit about those projects and how you kind of got into static analysis. Right yeah it's it's um, it's interesting that you phrase it that way especially because uh, the genesis of these sets of projects which mostly all derive their superpowers from um, a source kit, right? Uh, which, when 
Xcode uh, 6 came out and Swift 1.0 or even the, the beta version of Swift, uh, SourceKit was already in there in the Xcode bundle. And um, a few of us actually kind of discovered that SourceKit was doing a lot of the heavy lifting that was powering the IDE. Yeah. And so um, uh, around uh, May of 2015, I was uh, uh, planning on going to UIConf, which is this amazing conference in Berlin. Yeah. And I wanted to give a talk saying that, um, you know, we really shouldn't have to rely on Apple to provide tools for us as a community, that it's our job, just like any other language community out there, to um, uh, step up ourselves as well uh, and to, to build some tools. And uh, I didn't feel like I could really get my point across just yet. Um, and so uh, I uh, worked on Swiftlint in order to really drive the point across that, hey, we can actually build these tools. Right, so the genesis of those projects, Jazzy to generate documentation, Swiftlint in order to analyze your source code, uh, really came out of this desire to kind of encourage other people to also build tools like that. And what's great is that over time, uh, people did, right? There's Sorcery from Christoph Zaboki yeah. uh, that, that came out, and um, Swinjet, which people talked about uh, at, the, at this conference, and there's just kind of a whole slew of tools that ended up being built in a similar way. Yeah. And that was really kind of the, the main motivation rather than kind of to build one specific tool. Right, yeah, that's a, that's a great motivation. And it's very funny, I think, you know, hearing your talk and having hearing you talk about, you know, that us as developers in the Apple ecosystem, sometimes we rely a little bit too much on Apple for our tooling, while sometimes maybe we should take matters into our own hands. And it's funny because I have said pretty much the exact same thing in some of my talks, and I know Orda has as well. So it's, it's great, I think, when people are, you know, we're kind of converging on this idea that, hey, you know, Xcode is great, all the Apple tools are great, but they don't fill all of our needs. And sometimes finding something of our own and building something of our own to also show that it's possible can be really, really great. Yeah, and you know you've built uh, tooling as well, um, and I'm, I'm sure we both agree that tooling, building tools isn't for everyone. You know, no. It's not like we're saying every single person who does Swift development also needs to be a tool maker, but there's a large number of people who are interested and just don't quite know where to start, and that's, that's the message that I'm trying to put across by building some example tools, and people can go off and do something entirely different, but just kind of have an idea that it's doable. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, also I love that one sentence you had in your talk was that tools are also like apps. Like uh, they're basically apps, right? And that is a great kind of um, eureka moment to have because when you start to create a tool, for example, using the Swift Package Manager or you maybe just write a command line tool in Xcode, you know, it's the same fundamental building blocks, right, that you have when you're building an app. Yeah, and that first time that you do it, there really is that kind of light bulb moment where you realize, oh, well, maybe this actually wasn't as hard as as I thought, and maybe I don't need to be a compiler wizard to figure this stuff out, right? Yeah, exactly, especially if you can leverage something like SourceKit to kind of do the heavy lifting for you as well. That's right. So um, static analysis in particular, uh, where do you kind of see that as being the most kind of powerful and useful? Uh, a lot of people obviously use things like Swiftlin, uh, but you were also kind of talking about extending that to new use cases. So when you have 
a problem? Like, when is it when you're approaching that using something like static analysis? Yeah, I think it's worth just taking a brief moment and kind of defining static analysis in in the traditional academic sense and the way that I, I've talked about it recently. Uh, so traditionally, it's really about kind of deep analysis of like the control flow of your program and um, uh, things like lattice theory and a, a number of really academic concepts. But really, the way I choose to see it is more about uh, deriving useful information about your program without running it. Right. And so that could be just analyzing its source uh, in, in simple ways, uh, like, for example, um, trying to identify inefficient code patterns, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're filtering a whole array and then just calling dot first afterwards, right. yeah. whereas, you know, there may be better, better APIs for this. Uh, so that's what I mean by kind of static analysis or things that are a little simpler to implement and simpler for those of us who aren't compiler wizards to understand and even build. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. Uh, there's a whole suite of tools there that we could actually build for ourselves. And so recently um, I started working on some of these slightly more advanced uh, tools like detecting unused code or unused imports or inefficient code patterns in a way that you don't need that full control f flow graph analysis, mm -hmm. but yeah. you can still kind of leverage some of the deep information that SourceKit has about your source code to make decisions like that. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Because I think static analysis can in many ways be a great complement to the Swift type system, right? Where Swift puts a heavy focus on static checks, on compile time safety, but it's not always that the compiler can catch these errors, right? And sometimes it has more to do with code style, sometimes it has more to do with like architectural choices or patterns, and you brought some of those use cases up as well in your talk. Yeah, and really I'd like to add kind of one more twist there, which is that the Swift compiler has to be accurate and correct for everyone all the time. Right. And the nice thing about some of these developer tools is that if it provides value, it doesn't need to be 100% accurate. It doesn't need to be lightning fast because you're not necessarily uh, invoking it every single command B mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that you run in Xcode. And so there's a little bit more room for, um, uh, for mistakes if it means that you can get something that's generally useful 90% of the time and you just kind of discard the false positives. Right. Of course, ideally, you'd be right all the time, but that's a lot harder to build. Oh, yeah, it sure is. And speaking of false positives, like how do you usually deal with those things? Like you mentioned in the talk, for example, you built this checker to see if a given framework was actually used when it was imported. So you can get rid of a lot of unused imports. But you mentioned also there, there can be some false positives where you have transient dependencies, for example, and things like that. So what's usually kind of your strategy, both from a technical point of view, but also like when working with static analysis in a team to kind of, you know, deal with these false positives? Yeah, I mean, uh, the the simple answer is that um, these kind of tools evolve over time, and right now, like these are very fresh, right? Like this stuff was uh, was built like in the last week, and so there's a lot of potential for uh, addressing, isolating, and addressing some of those false positives, um, either by uh, limiting the scope of the tool and trying to do a little bit less, but being more accurate about it, or um, or by finding novel ways where you can actually uh, address the root issue at the, uh, at the source. Yeah. Um, so my approach there is it depends on, on the value that you're getting from either more scope but more false positives or vice versa. 
And that mostly depends on um, how often you run the tool, how quick you need to run it, how accurate you need it to be. If you're running this on a CI server, uh, it better be very accurate. If you're just kind of running this yourself once every few weeks to do kind of major code cleanups, then you can be more tolerant of false positives because uh, of the way that you choose to use it. Yeah, exactly. It's all about like, is it going to be executed in a critical path or not, right? Yeah. And speaking of that, like, uh, how do you usually set up your project structure in that sense? Uh, like, for example, you mentioned maybe not doing everything on every single command B. Like, what's your what's your project structure there? Do you usually like add static analysis maybe to another target, or do you like use caching, or what's the general strategy there? Yeah, I, I think uh, people can build it a number of different ways. How I've implemented again very recently um, is by having a separate continuous integration target. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, because these uh, commands are a little lengthy to run, and because it uh, uh, it's a little awkward to run as well, where you need to extract full compiler arguments for the source code that you're analyzing, and Xcode doesn't really give you a really nice way to do that. Right. So right now, this tooling kind of parses a clean Xcode log. And so I just have a single CI target that will run this, and uh, even if it fails, I'll kind of ignore the output, but at least I can kind of validate that um, that if it's finding new things, that I can at least take a look at it. Nice. Yeah, I really like that. One thing I usually do also is that I add a run script phase to the UI testing targets because that's going to take a while to run anyway, and it's not usually something you use as a kind of TDD workflow. Uh, you more run it like when you want to test the whole app, so then you could put your tooling in there as well. Right, and, and the same approach that people take to optimizing their own application code also applies to their development environment and to their development process, where if it's if it's a hot code path, as they say, right, if it's part of your app that's constantly hit, you want to optimize every single millisecond of, of uh, performance that you can out of that. But if it's something that's rarely hit, then you don't necessarily need to be uh, that aggressive about it. And the same thing goes with your development process. If it's something you do frequently, often, uh, and uh, you need it to be quick, then you want it high accuracy and, and low overhead. But if it's something you do every now and, now and again and you don't need it to be accurate, it can take a little longer, have more false positives, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So on the last episode of the show, I was talking to Felix Krause about specifically building developer tools. And you know, he gave some really good tips about you know, how to get started and things like that. So I wanted to ask you the same thing because you've, you've also done a lot of developer tools but in a slightly different, you know, different area with static analyses and this kind of thing. So so uh, if people wanted to get started working with SourceKit, for example, what's a good place to, to go and good place to get started? Yeah, I think a good thing to do uh, if you don't have an end goal in mind necessarily, you're just kind of curious to expand the general state of Swift tooling, is um, uh, you can run Xcode with SourceKit logging enabled, oh. and then you can see all of the requests that Xcode is making to the SourceKit service, and you can also see all of the data that SourceKit is sending back in the response. Nice. So there's an environment variable, uh, SourceKit underscore logging. You set that to zero for nothing, one, two, or three for the maximum. If you set that to three, you'll see just a flurry of data come through. And if you see anything that you think might be actionable, that you might be able to derive some useful data out of that, um, then you kind of need to do a little bit of jotting down, finding down exactly what requests were sent, in what order, on what files, with what arguments, and things like that. Uh, but you can then go and reproduce that, which is exactly the approach that I took to build Jazzy and to build SwiftLint and things right. like that. Um, so if you find some useful patterns in the information that's being returned, you can use that uh, to, to build something more powerful. 
Nice. I love the fact that you know all of these flags and everything by heart. You can just like, you know, oh, just use one or two. Yeah, I know that all by heart. It's a you know, testament to how much you've actually worked with this stuff. Right. And really, there's just kind of the one environment variable. So it's kind of easy to, to remember. Easy but, to remember, yeah. um, you, you can get really far from that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely something I want to explore more as well. I'm also kind of heading into more of static analysis territory sometimes. And it's always great to know kind of what underlying tools exist and kind of how to approach them because not everything is super well documented. Sometimes you need to do a little bit of reverse engineering, like setting these environment variables to get the output. And it's always good to know where to start. Yeah, and really the last thing I'd say about that is that um, the approach that I've taken is really just one of the approaches you can take. And there's a number of other ways that you could be doing this, right? Um, what you've done uh, with your uh, Swift syntax highlighter. Oh yeah, Splash. Yeah, Splash. Is to, is to uh, parse the Swift code entirely from scratch. Yeah. Right? And uh, Nick Lockwood has this fantastic tool called Swift Format, and he does something similar there where he has his own Swift parser. And so that's another approach, or another approach entirely is to go way deep in the weeds and to actually build this stuff into the Swift compiler itself, right. uh, which is a fantastic way to, uh, to really reach a large audience if you want these improvements to be uh, widespread. Yeah, and that's also something you could probably use as a, some kind of you know, proof of concept to how it could actually be integrated into the compiler itself at some point, if, that's right. if, if that was a generic enough. Yeah, it all depends on the use case. And for Splash, for example, the reason I chose that path was simply because I wanted to be able to highlight very, very small snippets of code for a blog post. And I wouldn't want, you know, I, I don't have an Xcode project. I don't have a, you know, the whole, I don't want to run the whole lexing and the whole parsing on it. So it all depends on kind of, you know, what, what you're optimizing for and what the use case is. Right. And also for syntax having for a website or for uh, slides in a presentation, also um, you're optimizing for kind of, uh, visual readability more yeah. than accurateness. There you go, right? yeah. Um, so completely different needs there. So it makes total sense. Um, yeah. I really like what you've done and uh, it's it's you need to take different approaches for different results. Yeah, and that's it's awesome and thank you for, for saying that. And um, I also love when you have these many different styles of implementation available as open source projects. People can have a look at them, they can see the different trade-offs, they can see you know how the different approaches look like and inform their decision on the next tool. Which Amen, is awesome. brother. Awesome. This has been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me here today, JP. And I look forward to having you on the show again at some point in the future. Yeah, thanks, John. And uh, you keep up the good work. Thanks. And if people want to find you online, where should they go? At SimJP on Twitter or uh, github.com slash jpsim. That's easy. All right. Thank you so much. Now let's head to the after party. Let's do it. All right. So that was our last interview for this episode. On the next episode, we'll be back to the regular format, uh, but I hope you enjoyed this kind of special little episode. Uh, it was a lot of fun to put it together, and if you have any feedback at all, please let me know. Uh, I would love to hear it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell, and you can find everything about this show and the weekly Swift articles that I write at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.